Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me, as always, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey, hello to our listeners and for the last time this year, welcome to what we think is good. (laughs) Do you know off the top of your head, Ed, what has won every year since we've started doing this show? Because this is not only our end of year show, it's actually our seventh anniversary show because mm. we've been doing this this we've been we've been on this ship for seven years i don't know because we've changed it over the years how we do it because i think the first couple of years it was just like us listing our films that we liked from that year as opposed to what we do now where we each have a ballot and we kind of come up with a consensus mm-hmm. so i think i think the first like couple of episodes we did were just me you and adam in the the way way back mm. uh that first episode was literally just all of us having our top 10 for the year and counting it down and it took an absolute age mm. so yeah i'm not i'm not sure off the top of my head i think definitely searching for sugar man won one year yeah that was like i think that was the first year that we in- introduced the idea of the consensus ballot yes so, so that was, um, that was mad really max fury road i'm pretty sure won as well mm, yeah one year. that sounds right what won last year what even came out last year? <laughs> Who knows? Who can even remember? Probably The Greatest Showman. Mm. Um, a, a film that, whilst we talked about it a lot at the beginning of the year, about how we were kind of stunned that it was running and running, uh, mm. is still fucking playing. <laughs> um, not only is it sh- like screening in uh, sing-along versions all across the country, but Hugh Jackman is taking it on tour. I don't know if you saw this yeah. news this week. I was, I was about to mention Ugh. that. <laughs> like I saw, I saw it like a couple of months ago. You saw it in the cinema. Mm-hmm. Really, your fault. Um, <laughs> like that is a fucking painfully mediocre film. Mm. I mean, I, I kind of got caught up in the enthusiasm of it of just everyone else around me. But yeah, like in terms of production and choreography, I think it's pre- it's pretty lacking. And those mm. are really important things for a movie, and particularly important for a for a musical and like (laughs) as i was as i was watching it i found myself thinking i like this i think i like this more than i liked la la land whilst also thinking it's worse than la la land in every kind of meaningful (laughs) meaningful way and i'm not sure quite how that worked i think it was just like that uh the greatest showman just didn't tell take itself seriously in the way that i think la la land did and Mm. it, it didn't have sense of like oh damien chazelle is deigning to make it a musical which mm. kind of felt like that whereas this is like this really that really did have a sense of like hey everybody we're gonna put on a show we got real song and dance people and we're all gonna have a big old fun time and i think that that energy of it is i think what a lot of people responded to as opposed to the ridiculous dumb story that has no bearing on reality and the largely forgettable songs Mm. Uh, but but I think a lot of the cast are very charming. Like uh, Zendaya is really really winning in that lead role. Uh, I guess kind of third build. I guess she would be, and I think it's a really good use of Zac Efron's talents. Mm. Yeah, I'm not buying it, Ed. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I came out of that thinking, oh, maybe I was a bit harsh on La La Land. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of how I felt, whilst also feeling 
kind of cheated about how mm. poorly put together that film is and how I just, you know, when like you're in a room, you didn't feel this because you, you've just literally admitted to being swept up in the hyped. So I'm not going to let you forget <laughs> that. But like, I've honestly felt like I was on a different planet to everyone else in the room who was watching that, who was there in floods of tears throughout the whole thing, mm. kind of super engaged with the story. And I was just like, what is even happening? And then I lost myself thinking that P.T. Barnum was the man who had executed the elephant on the pier um, to <laughs> test. But then, then I got lost on Wikipedia whilst we were watching it, trying to work out who that was or if I'd dreamt that. But that is true. Someone did electrocute an elephant. But it turns out the elephant was an asshole. Oh. And it had, it had been a right pain, pain in the ass to its trainer. So they just electrocuted it. Amazing. Make a musical about that guy. I'll watch it. Yeah, I was going to say, wasn't that Edison? It wasn't Edison. Like- it was oh. some other chump. Um, who was try- who was who was in the electricity game? Mm. Uh, it wasn't Tesla, mm. and like maybe that's why we remember those guys because they didn't electrocute a fucking elephant for mm. the general <laughs> entertainment purposes. Of the- well, hang on, hang on. We just started talking about the best films of the year, and now we're talking about electrocuting elephants. This is very on brand for us. Mm, we're talking about the movies we want to see, which mm. uh, <laughs> is really is really the, the 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 first rule in criticism is you should you shouldn't review the movie you wish had been made. And mm. frankly, the movie we apparently wanted to see this year was uh, elephants being electrocuted. I don't know. There's probably something in there about general dislike for the Republican Party if you really want to dig into it. Mm, yeah, I mean, that is symbolism uh, is perhaps <laughs> the most obvious form. Yeah. But it was a, it was an all right year, wasn't it? Too far, I mean, this is the thing everyone says, you know, is it a good year for film? Is it a bad year for film? And someone once said, and it's very true, that if you don't think it's a good year for film, you're probably looking in the wrong place. Mm, yeah, I remember many, many years ago, I think Mark Cousins said something to that effect. I think it was writing in uh, a journal put together by the aforementioned Adam Batty, where it was like a, a thing about the year in film. And his introduction to it was basically saying like, if you're paying attention and you're watching as much as possible, then most years are pretty good. Mm. Like there's always going to be something interesting being made. Like some years may be more of a bumper crop than others, but like this year it felt like there was a pretty good variety of good stuff. There was a lot of mainstream movies that I really, really liked a lot of blockbusters that I thought were of a, really good quality i just saw spider-man into the spider-verse today which i thought was really quite dazzling and amazing and i wish it come out like a month earlier so i could have harangued you and emily to watch it to see if we could have got it onto the list but alas it came out a little too late for that mission impossible 6 which just barely uh, mission impossible fallout i should say just barely Mm. missed out on our top 10 was one of the most enjoyable two hours you can spend in a cinema in recent memory i think that what Christopher McQuarrie and Tom Cruise have done over the last two movies has been to just kind of really hone that series down into like its core elements of what people want to see are ridiculous stunts and Tom Cruise almost killing himself. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, I think maybe the tension of those movies is the audience wanting to see, you know, wanting to see him go Mm. uh, on screen because he would probably leave it in. He would insist it would be left in. Yeah, it's the faces of death of a new generation. (laughs) Yeah. I was happy to put Mission Impossible 6 on my kind of best of year ballot. I didn't Mm. think I'd be saying that at the start of the year. But yeah, like you say, that series is kind of, you know, film by film, rendering the Bond franchise redundant. Mm. Yeah, certainly 
I mean, even though it it kind of played in the same waters of having like the movies kind of connect to each other in the way that the recent Bond movies have to mm. their detriment, I still think it worked particularly well. Largely because Sean Harris is like a really fun villain, yeah. and he has he has such a, a wonderful voice and a great way of speaking that really kind of conveys menace, even though he looks like an accountant. <laughs> mm. Like he he does not look like someone who should be intimidating to someone like tom cruise or who could command oh i was gonna say i was gonna say a character's name and spoil part of the movie who could command burly henchmen i'll say yeah um to do his bidding but he has he has a lot of charisma to him that really comes across on on screen uh, i thought also there were some decent studio comedies came out this year i really really liked game night i thought oh that, that was, was fun that was a lot of fun yes a hugely enjoyable movie really nicely put together just from a directorial standpoint and it didn't feel too much like they just let the cast run with it they mm. it, there, there probably was some bits of improv here and there but it felt a lot more kind of keenly considered and structured mm. I would also say that as a board game fan, the game selection is bullshit. Um, <laughs> who gets together to play fucking Monopoly and Taboo on like any, like no one does that. Mm. If I wanted to watch it, even be realistic, I want to see four people sweating through 26 hours of Twilight Imperium. Um, <laughs> and, you know, uh, and all the rules crunching and lawyering that that ensues. What I did like about Game Night is a very accurate depiction of what would happen if my wife shot me in the elbow. And how <laughs> and how uh, that would be dealt with because that's exactly what would happen. Also, on your recommendation on the same theme, uh, Blockers was pretty funny this year. That yes. was one that was kind of a, a little kind of sleeper hit mm. that will be inevitably sequelized and ruined. Yeah, I think that one was a little looser in its mm-hmm. kind of. It definitely felt more like they occasionally would let the characters, the cast, kind of play around, but all those actors are really charming and charismatic and particularly the younger generation of the, the kind of like the daughters. And I thought that its focus was perfect for the story Mm -hmm. it was telling. Like it didn't feel like what the trailer seems to suggest it was going to be. And what basically put me off seeing it in the theater until everyone in the world said, Oh no, blockers is really good. Was that it seemed initially like, Oh, this is going to be a story about all these parents trying to stop their daughters from having sex and that it was going to be their story. But instead it was more or less equally divided between the two. And I thought that it, it had the perspective of both halves really, really well. Mm, yeah. On a less mainstream uh, tip, I really liked uh, the sisters brothers, which came out, Towards the end of this year, the Jacques Odiard adaptation of the Patrick DeWitt novel, starring John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix, which I thought was a really entertaining, poetic western that had uh, an ending which I found really strangely moving in a way that reminded me of the ending of Raising Arizona. You know that sense of you've just watched a movie that's kind of taken you on a weird, a very weird journey, and then suddenly ends on this like a moment of peace and repose that's kind of shocking in its earnestness and i thought that movie didn't get the the shake that it deserved i thought mm-hmm. that was a, a really really good movie and i think if i mean we're not really doing recommendations this episode because everything's a recommendation <laughs> except mm. for the greatest showman i guess but uh, if i were to have a recommendation that that is one i think people should should check out when it becomes available on on blu-ray or on demand or whatever i think that's a, a really underrated movie mm. It's worth noting as well as you know, whilst we bang on about it as as being a kind of a, a constant 
theme of the last few years of the show, talking about Netflix and, and distribution models and everything, it's worth noting that it's been a very strong year for Netflix. Mm. Um, and quite a few of our top ten are Netflix movies, mm-hmm. um, which speaks volumes to how, if you make things accessible, people get to watch them. But also the stuff that didn't make the cut, I really liked the movie To All the Boys I've Loved Before. That was a mm. really fun film, a kind of utterly charming kind of romantic comedy in 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 the the vein of uh, edge of 17 uh, which yeah. we liked last year i mean there was a lot of duffers on on uh, on netflix as well but i mean you know that it's starting to represent the uh sort of starting to mirror the film industry very accurately in that sense and the mm. studios um but then also like you know if this was being recorded next week roma might have been a feature of our lists um mm. because that came out today i think and it dropped yeah. today and although i don't know if you've heard it but if you if you ever if you actually really have to see it you really should see it on a big screen um mm. that's what people are saying so you know i'm gonna watch it on a watch yeah just gonna, gonna hack into an apple watch and somehow mm. make it possible to watch roma on it <laughs> I'm going to watch uh, it on a on a mirror, um, <laughs> like reflected and like through the mirror, mm-hmm. uh, and then another mirror. So I just see endless, kind of like you know tunnels of Roma. <laughs> There's been a lot on Netflix, and I won't spoil it, but some of our selections uh, can be found on that streaming platform. Mm, it definitely feels as if the algorithm finally threw up good movies as mm. like the thing that they should be aiming their business towards and that really i mean we don't know if it's going to pay off in terms of awards like it's still early days but you know if if they end up with a best picture nomination for roma which seems to be the thing that they're really pushing then you know it'll all have been worth it for, mm-hmm. for them to have finally said hey why don't we just put our money into movies that people say are really good instead mm-hmm. of making mass deals with Adam Sandler. Although apparently his stand-up special this year was really good. So even Adam Sandler's putting out stuff that people like on Netflix. They've they've really turned the corner. Mm. I'd also like to like throw out that there's been a lot of films that have been kind of super, super hyped in on kind of the American release front but have struggled to find distribution over here, mm. which are things like... Eighth Grade, the Bo Burnham movie, things like Blind blind Spotting, which played for like a day over here and then disappeared. You know, it didn't play anywhere. I think it's now on iTunes. You have to see the only way you get to see that Mm. um, is on your watch. But yeah, I mean, I'm starting to wonder whether we're feeling the idea that the levees might break in that sense, that that a lot of those smaller movies might just appear on streaming platforms because it seems pointless having a cinema release. Mm. you know if it's not going to be given a fair shake then why bother like you may as well just put it where people are going to watch it and waste the time Mm. although kind of counter to that there were there were some certainly over here there were some success stories of movies that were kind of very small scale outperforming what people may have expected i think you really saw that with a bunch of documentaries like three identical strangers which i actually didn't like very much i found it very manipulative Mm -hmm. but it certainly did well for a documentary it made like 15 million dollars which is very very good won't you be my neighbor did really really well i think that did like 20 or 30 million which is huge for a documentary Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly like a biographical documentary and there is definitely a market for smaller movies but yeah it does feel as if maybe it's really like that people want to see like a documentary or something 
edifying, I guess, or something that's kind of going to take them on a journey like that, as opposed to your typical art house fair, which may just get pushed to on-demand and streaming services, which would be a shame, but like, mainly because I think it's harder for people to find them when everything's just thrown up onto iTunes. Mm. I think that my, my issue is is that like they put blind spotting out and I was someone who's desperate to see that having when mm. it was first announced and I didn't know about it until it'd gone. Right. Yeah. Like if 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 they can't commit to doing something and making sure everyone sees it, then I almost feel like they may as well have just cut cut out of the middleman. Because mm. it's not like yeah. they made money on the cinema release that lasted one day. Yeah, it definitely feels as if this period of disruption, to use a terrible term for an awful thing, um, has really hurt the the little guy in as much as there are little people in mm-hmm. in film distribution. Although, having said that, you know, one of the the little guys that's really come good in recent years would be someone like Jason Bloom, who's or Blum, who is doing fantastic business off of like making stuff that's small budget and has manages to reach out to a big audience. You know, he had one of his biggest hits of of the entire existence of Blumhouse with the sequel to Halloween, which came out this year and did huge business. Um, Mm. And also gave David Gordon Green his biggest hit, which is maybe not that surprising when you look at the kind of movies he's made, but it still seems very weird that of the movies that he has... The way his career has gone, that the biggest movie he would make would be a Halloween movie. Mm. What was... This is something we normally do, Ed, uh, at the end of year, is what were the big... The top ten biggest grossing movies of the year uh do you want to do worldwide or just in america worldwide yeah worldwide let's do that yeah we're an international podcast Mm, we're in international waters let's hear it (laughs) Uh, perhaps unsurprisingly uh, a lot of superhero movies dominate the list and sequels Mm. and some at least at least one surprising entry in there not necessarily because you would think this movie wouldn't make money but in the sense of wow it made that much money uh, so number 10, we have Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Domestic abuse. Yes, uh, <laughs> one of the many, but a, 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 by all accounts, not very good movie, and a movie that has underperformed by Harry Potter movie standards, has made $595 million worldwide. So that's just really a sign of how strong the Harry Potter <laughs> brand is, that a movie can underperform and still be the 10th highest grossing movie of the year. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous, ridiculous. Number nine, Ant-Man and the Wasp, which earned $622.7 million. Oh, That was fun. That is a very fun movie. I greatly enjoy... Uh, it's the, a trick they've done in both movies, but I always enjoy when Michael Pena recounts things that have happened <laughs> and they just have the uh, the actors kind of act out whatever he's uh, telling, drunk history style. Yeah. Uh, those are always really, really fun. And I think Peyton Reed has has really demonstrated his skills of visual storyteller in those movies in making them just fun fun romps mm-hmm. number eight and this was the movie i was alluding to bohemian rhapsody earned 635.9 million dollars mm. the film that everyone tells me is good but i um but i don't trust them everyone is lying <laughs> yeah. um, i mean there's bits of it like the the live aid concert stuff is is good mm-hmm. but like it really does feel like the sort of movie that shouldn't be made. Well, one, because it's made by a criminal. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it shouldn't be made post-Walk Hard. 
like if you look at that and you look at walk hard you go this is the same <laughs> this mm-hmm. is exactly what jake kasdan and co were making fun of 11 years ago and it is ridiculous that this movie is being made in this way but rami malik's good in it so he's probably going to get an oscar nomination yeah it's it's it is, it is surprising that it is done quite that well but mm-hmm. here we are yeah. number seven deadpool 2 734.2 million recently re-released in a form to make it a PG-13 in the US but still a 15 in the UK which wow. is very very funny to me that they went to all that effort and they were like nah you still can't release this as a kids film what are you insane <laughs> then number 6 the aforementioned Mission Impossible Fallout which earned 791 million I think the highest grossing for the series mm-hmm. if you don't account for inflation because if you account for inflation then like the first two were absolute monster hits but mm-hmm. still very good and uh, very good showing there and number five a movie that i was very tempted to just buy on itunes because it fascinates me so much uh, venom which <laughs> earned 852.7 million i haven't quite taken the plunge but it was like because usually we try and watch all of these so that we can at least comment on all of them. And that one's currently $20 on iTunes and then it's available for rent in like three days. Mm-hmm. And I was like, uh, can, you know, can I can I do exactly what I did for Batman v Superman and just buy it mm-hmm. and have it there to taunt me for all time? But uh, I haven't quite pulled the trigger on that. But um, certainly everything anyone, everyone has said about Tom Hardy's performance in that made me think I would at least find it fascinating. I like that you, you're you right, every year we do try and watch all these, but this year I've just felt like, yeah, come on, life's too short. I'm not sure I really want to do this. Mm. And and to be fair, like Fantastic Beasts just crept in, and that's one neither of us have, saw, have seen. Prior to that, Ready Player One was like the number 10 movie of the year, so Ugh. that was another one we did see, and which did surprisingly well and has kind of blinked out of existence in the cultural consciousness mm. which is weird considering it is all culture crammed into a movie mm. number four we have incredibles 2 which earned 1.2 billion dollars 1.241 to be precise jesus christ yes in the u.s as well it is the ninth most successful movie of all time <laughs> what? which yeah and it's, it's, again not adjusting for inflation it's in the top 10 which is is nuts because it's a movie and i really like Incredibles too. I think it, it does some really interesting stuff and um, Brad Bird's just an amazing action director so even if it wasn't kind of trying to dig into a lot of stuff about I don't know the media and masculinity and things like that it still would be dazzling to watch but mm-hmm. it still feels like a movie that came and went but it came and went with a lot of people's money in its pockets it seems. <laughs> yeah fair. Another movie which did exactly the same thing and made even less of an impact Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which earned $1.3 billion. <laughs> Ugh. Um, I mean, that was yeah. bullshit, that film. Uh, I mean, it, it's a big drop from the first movie, but still, Christ, that's yeah. a lot of movie. For the, it's a lot of money for, for not a lot of movie. Mm, yeah, for, for something that barely left a stain, um, mm. that, you know, I, I actually thought that was last year. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I kind of, it was only the other day when someone brought it up, I was like, oh shit, was that happened this year? Mm. Yeah. 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 Not good. There there does seem to be, I I don't know if this is due to the way in which kind of like the news is constantly hitting us, but there does seem to be like a, um, a cause effect where everything seems to have happened 
just yesterday and 12 years ago at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to keep everything in check and to kind of quite place where exactly everything was. Like I was just reading because they've, I think they just announced that the documentary about Fire Festival is going to be on Netflix. And I think that only happened last year. But to me, like that feels like it happened in the mid nineties. <laughs> it's like our Woodstock. <laughs> yeah, it's already been kind of carved into stone and kind of immortalized in song. Number two is a movie we'll be talking about in a little bit. Spoilers: Black Panther, which earned one point three four six billion worldwide, and mm-hmm. unsurprisingly, because it's a really good movie, but also it's uh, a really good Marvel movie. And Marvel movies, as you know, we just saw with the uh, with ant-man and the wasp and kind of deadpool their movies just do really really well regardless of quality but that one is very good Mm -hmm. and number one is a movie that to me kind of felt weirdly ended up feeling like a non-event considering how much it built up to it but everyone else seemed to like it so what am i who am i to say but avengers infinity war which earned 2.047 billion dollars wow yeah yeah that's quite a lot of money because when, when you said Black Panther there, I was like, shit, what came out and took more money than Black Panther? And mm. I think it says a lot. I've seen a, a Infinity War twice now, and it just feels at this point like I'm not watching individual films. I'm catching a bit of an ongoing series that is on TV mm. and kind of dipping in and out of it, and it all just feeds into into one, and that's perhaps not a good thing. Mm. But yeah, at least Black Panther seemed distinct. Yeah, I think that's the unique strength of the Marvel franchise and also something that's just detrimental i think to all big budget filmmaking is that they really did nail that idea of hey this is kind of like a big ongoing story and you have to keep up so everything kind of ends up reinforcing each other Mm -hmm. and they and they struck upon a likable enough version of that formula for it to just keep going and everyone else who's tried it has just failed miserably because they just can't seem to get the balance right Mm. Uh, but everyone feels that they have to you know, oh, the first movie is really just setting up the second movie and the second movie is setting up the next three movies and the second movie is not even going to get made anymore. So mm. all of those hints and omens and, and kind of Easter eggs are completely meaningless and mean nothing to anyone. Mm. You've been divergent. Now you're going to be insurgent. What's next on television, probably, without the main cast? Mm. Which I don't even think ended up happening. It didn't happen. I think no, no one wanted to do that. Even in the age of peak TV, they thought that was an insult. Yeah. Interesting that, you know, perhaps at the start of the year, if you'd have asked me what I thought would have been in there, uh, you know, it would have been a hands-down banker that a Star Wars movie would appear in there. But yeah. Solo didn't even, probably probably didn't even make the top 20 because that was pretty dismally received in terms mm. of, uh, well, certainly at the box office. As we said in our episode about it, it was overwhelmingly fine. And Mm. I watched it a second time to see if it got any better. And it actually doesn't. It just stays the same. That Mm. weird thing when you're looking at it. And all the pieces seem correct, but it's just not... Nothing's happening. (laughs) Nothing's sparking. Nothing's, you know... It's okay, but... I don't know why I'm watching it, but that was yeah. surprising. And 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 although Disney had an all right year <laughs> with some mm. of the other stuff they had out, um, that was enough to make them think twice about rushing other films out. Mm. Yeah, for the record, Solo: A Star Wars Story came in at number eighteen worldwide with three hundred ninety-two <sighs> million, which is 
not great for Star War, but also it's probably going to drop out of the top 20 because it's currently only $16 million ahead of A Star is Born, which is mm-hmm. still kind of still going, going fairly strong. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Seuss's The Grinch, which is also kind of still wrecking in the money, certainly in the US. Uh, and I think there's pr- it's probably going to be overtaken by Aquaman when that comes out. So at the time of recording, it's barely holding on to the top 20, but probably will be out before the year is done. Mm. If If a company like Disney has a year like it's had, where, yeah. you know the top three movies were just so big and all belong to one company. Can you write off something like that? Or do you think it's a, a, a bit of a slap to the face? I think it maybe is a bit of both. Like it wasn't necessarily hugely important to whatever their plans are for the future. Like, I think they would have liked to have done like three solo movies or whatever, but they had other, they have other properties they can put their time and effort into. Like they've got another 10 Marvel movies planned out so they can just focus on that. But it definitely seemed to chasten them a little bit when it came to their plans for Star Wars specifically. Like they definitely seemed to move away from the idea of Star Wars story. I think a couple of the projects that were maybe at one point going to B movies are now probably going to be TV shows like The mm-hmm. Mandalorian, which for a long time they talked about like a Boba Fett movie, uh, but now it's probably going to be a TV show. So I think I think they both can kind of take it in stride, and it's not going to really hurt them too much. But it maybe has made them think maybe Star Wars should be treated differently than Marvel. Like we can't put out three of these in the course of a twelve month span. Or mm. two of them within six months. I think that was the real problem. It's like you just had a Star Wars movie, and here's another one. It's like, whoa, wait. I'm used to having like a little bit of time to digest these. Mm. Yeah, I think that was genuinely a, a problem. Like, given that also when people build into their yearly schedule, oh, Christmas is the time we go and see the Lord of the Rings movie or the mm. Harry Potter movie. In the last few years, it's been the Star Wars movie. And then this Christmas, someone asked me the other day, was like, is there a Star Wars coming out in the next few weeks? And I was like, yeah. no, we, they kind of just bungled it out in May. Don't you remember the solo movie? And they were like, uh, um, yeah, maybe. And then that's kind of why perhaps your, your people who aren't on top of the news all the time probably didn't go and see it because it's a... What did we go and see with the family at Christmas? Oh, we're going to see the big Star Wars movie. But mm. stick out in May, no one gave a shit. Yeah, it just became another blockbuster. And mm. there were, you know, there were better blockbusters for people to look at this year. There sure were. And Solo. Okay, so we'll jump into the SRS Top 10. Uh, a little background on how we came to this Top 10 for people who are maybe unfamiliar with our process. Basically, you, I, and Emily put together our respective top 10s and I assigned points to each placing. So the number one placing had 15 points, number two, 14, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I tied up all of the points for each of the nominations until we ended up with the top 10. And so this is kind of our consensus list, which means that it has choices from pretty much all of us, but not necessarily in the order we would put them. So it pleases everyone and no one as a consensus list, a good consensus list always will. And uh, so obviously you and I have been talking for this intro, but people are going to hear me and Emily talk about some of the picks mm-hmm. as well over the next kind of like however long this takes <laughs> to kind of run through all 10. And we're going to start with uh, one of Emily's picks, uh, speaking of which, the documentary Bixer Travesty, a.k.a. 
Tranny Fag. Now, Emily, I must admit that I haven't seen uh, this particular movie because it, as far as I'm aware, hasn't come out in the US in any form, but it was very, very high on your list, so it has placed uh, reasonably high in the consensus SRS top 10. So uh, I will hand, hand it over to you to kind of talk about this this movie. So I think the first thing to make very clear is that Tranny Fag is not the original title of the film. It's it's mm-hmm. a Brazilian documentary, and uh, I'm probably going to say this horribly because my Portuguese is uh, non-existent, but um, Bicha Travesti is the actual title. And it, it, it kind of, yeah, this kind of idea of, of travesty, bitch, it's not quite... The translation is is imperfect, but I think mm. the the incredible person that the film profiles is reasonably, if not, I hesitate to say happy, but at least has probably passed <laughs> off on, on the title. Um, but it follows Linda Quebrada, who is a transgender Brazilian musician and um, an activist. And it's a really beautiful, considered portrait that manages to steer away from a lot of kind of tragic queer narrative, um, even mm. though there are elements of the film which do show Lynn in various different struggles. It really focuses on their music and their performance. It's it's an artist biopic, first and foremost, which I love, and it gets across the absolute energy of the performances and how articulate and eloquent and interesting Lynn is as an artist whose identity is of course very much at the forefront of a lot of their work but Mm. the film itself manages to show the entire person which I find really refreshing because I think there is still a lot of films that are put someone as their trauma and nothing else or as a Mm. you know if you are a marginalised person, then that's all you are. And actually, this is an incredibly celebratory film and it really blew me away. And I was fortunate enough to see it at DocFest where there was then a performance by Lynn and uh, their artistic partner, Yup, as well. And it was phenomenal. So if you ever get a chance to see the film or them, you will not regret it. Yeah, that sounds absolutely amazing. And I think it's it's been a very interesting year i think for mainstream queer cinema certainly in the u.s because you had over the summer everyone was talking about something like love simon and there was a lot of debate about whether or not that movie being a movie about kind of like a young gay teenager where the fact that he was gay was kind of almost incidental to the story or not incidental like it wasn't the, the fact that he was gay wasn't like the central thing uh, in the way that it often is in kind of like mainstream movies that try and tell queer stories and the question of whether or not that's kind of helpful of like trying to make it like oh you know people in, in the lgbtq community are all the same as, as straight people basically yeah if that's if that's helpful and i think it's it's important that movies like this get made which basically say I mean, yeah, we're all human, but that doesn't mean we're all the same. Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of variation underneath that header, you know. Yeah. And now, another Emily pick at number nine, No Greater Law. And again, uh, unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to see this. So, Emily, please uh, tell us about No Greater Law. Well, see, Ed, this is another one that I had the uh, privilege of being able to see at Sheffield Dockfest. And mm. it is... So, another documentary, and it's... 
I mean, it's described as an investigation. Um, I think it's less an investigative because to me that suggests something like I don't know, tickled, right? Which ends mm-hmm. up becoming like the, the documentary makers become incredibly active in the actual process of finding things out. I think this is an observational document of watching a very particular case study of American freedom, which is absolutely fascinating. Mm. So it's all set in Idaho, uh, in the Treasure Valley where it's a very particular sect of Christian scientists who don't believe in any sort of medicine or scientific intervention when they get ill. And they just believe in in prayer and anointing the oil. And it is this incredibly sensitive document, I feel, because it is looking to understand without... I think it manages to still take a side but taking a side from like empirical basis it's not trying to say oh we're showing all sides of the debate like the the issue is is that it's an incredibly i mean it's it's just staggering how high the infant mortality rate is amongst this community Mm. and then you also have people who have defected from the church and these are adults who are deeply scarred and traumatized people and the film doesn't shy away from trying to understand, well, is that because of the Christian science beliefs or is that an abuse thing? Like, is where, where does that fall? Is there a different level of abuse going on here? What, what is this? And I think it kind of manages to have, even if it doesn't agree with the immensely charismatic and, and on the surface, very kind seeming um, Dan Seavey, who's the patriarch of one of the families um, who has lost children himself, mainly through a unique genetic disorder. It, 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 there is this kind of hovering question of, is there something even more disconcerting going on? Why are these children continuing to die? And it, and it does try to, I would say, if not investigate, then in, interrogate and to say, well, how can you watch your, your child die and think that that's your belief, mm. you know? But, but manages to, I think, w- without, without pretending to have an answer, which I really appreciated. It is mm. essentially saying, well, America, if you talk about freedom and the freedom to practice religion, <laughs> but then you have incredibly vulnerable people at risk of losing their lives because of that. Who, who wins? No one wins in this. And the bizarre thing for me was just watching a film and realising that the person that I, who was essentially my my hero or the person that I aligned with the most in the film is your kind of died in the wall Republican anti-abortion <laughs> pro-lifer mm. who's looking into this. Politics makes strange bedfellows. That's all I'm going to say. It is also just beautifully shot. Like the, the way that it manages to get out this incredibly like poetic and stark landscape of Idaho is really something else. So I don't know whether it will have a wider release. It's been a while since I've seen it at Docfest. It's a difficult watch shocker emily given what you've <laughs> what you've told us about the film but i think an immensely oh rewarding if harrowing one it, it sounds like one i think but but maybe a deeply necessary movie in some ways because i know whenever i think of like the christian scientists all i think of is like the stories that spalding gray would talk about it because spalding yeah. gray 
was uh, brought up a Christian scientist, and that, that uh, that's a big part of his his show, which was later uh, directed to turn into a movie by I think Soderbergh, Grey's Anatomy, mm. which is kind of him talking about his own relationship to his own health uh, and the way in which being a Christian scientist shaped that, and that's a a very kind of as a great show, and he's a, the hugely charismatic speaker as he was, but the problem with the way which he presents that is it kind of just comes across as like oh a kooky thing (laughs) and that's kind of something that is a a broader problem with i think you could also say about something like anti-vaxxers or something like that that maybe people don't take these sort of things as seriously as they should and maybe they view it as just kind of like kooky things as opposed to oh no this is a thing that can result in people dying incredibly preventable deaths um and yeah it's a a, a great shout for Docfest, which is a favorite of this show certainly oh, uh, yeah. i think of all of us individually they do great work and at number eight you were never really here now this is one that uh, is in largely because of its high placing on your ballot matt so mm-hmm. now now we'll talk about it this was the movie from uh lynn ramsey who previously had directed Things like Ratcatcher, Morven Caller. Her f- most recent film prior to this would have been We Need to Talk About Kevin, which I think was in a nice kind of like full circle. We were talking about how we've been doing this show for seven years. I think that was one of the first movies we ever talked about on this show because uh, you and I went to a press screening of it and you did not like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I strongly disliked it. Uh, but I fully admit that it, I was prejudiced by actively disliking the book which Mm. made me at its pivotal twist made me throw the book down and just say oh fuck off (laughs) um and i felt like and i think that perhaps the film deserves more from me and then there's more going in there than just being a kind of like you know adaptation of a book i hated Mm. um but you were never really here a film that kind of like passed me by this year um, I kind of heard it was coming out, didn't see it at the cinema, kind of missed out on it, and then it just like kind of popped up on Amazon Prime. I was super excited about seeing it because Lynn Ramsey is always good value, no matter what she's doing. And Joaquin Phoenix is generally a kind of hypnotic screen presence, apart mm. from when he's pretending to be a rapper <laughs> or the Joker, which we'll get to probably next next year. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the film does not disappoint. Um, it's a kind of dreamlike story about a kind of hitman slash enforcer i guess mm. who is tasked with recovering the daughter of a prominent politician from a kind of like a sex ring mm. and there's kind of notes of taxi driver in there very obviously kind of like thematic notes from the the plot i've described but also there's kind of stylistic notes but then there's also this kind of like really unsettling kind of intimacy to the film there's kind of these really strange little moments where um there's a connection between a killer and someone who's dying and the one that most people remember is is um without kind of spoiling the 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 people who invade joaquin phoenix's character's uh family home end Mm. up not living (laughs) (laughs) through that but the way that that happens is i don't know it wasn't particularly like anything i'd seen before and Mm. i remember watching it and feeling kind of repulsed 
but also incredibly drawn in at the same time. And that's not an easy thing to do with you know such characters. It's people make anti-hero movies all the time and films about unsympathetic characters all the time. But Joaquin Phoenix's Hitman was not really either. Mm. Um, and it you know manages to pull off a very kind of deft balancing act. And it's a film that will stay with me for quite some time. Um, it really did get under my skin, and yeah, it wasn't. I'm not surprised that it it perhaps didn't stick around in cinemas because it's it's quite weird the way it's presented. It's quite unusual. It's it's you're not really sure of what's going on the first twenty minutes, or I think, or maybe even less than that, maybe ten. You never really see Joaquin Phoenix. He's in every single scene, <laughs> but you mm-hmm. like you're either seeing him from behind or in the dark, or like you know, glimpse of his face. You never actually see a close up of the main character or a clear shot of the main character for a long time. And yeah, I can understand if people were kind of fairly cold to it or or standoffish to it. But for me, it was just yeah, a kind of spellbinding kind of performance from him and also the direction was was pretty wonderful as well and i, I kind of really hope that um because it was a it kind of it was a big festival hit wasn't it but then just didn't yeah. really do much else yeah i think i i don't know how much amazon who i think are behind it are mm. i don't know how much they're pushing it in relation to other projects they might have for awards attention but i hope that it picks up something of a a following in its kind of post-release life, because I do think it is a really striking movie, and I think the way that Ramsey treats the violence in it is really compelling. Mm-hmm. She really makes it feel both kind of clinical and also really visceral at the same time. Like, I always think of... The, the sequence that I really think of is when he goes into that kind of brothel or wherever where the the sex ring is based and Mm -hmm. a lot of the kills that he does uh with a hammer Mm -hmm. are all depicted through cctv footage on a monitor Mm -hmm. and it is really it does it makes you feel the impact whilst also keeping you out of remove Mm -hmm. and i think that's a really smart choice i think it also kind of encapsulates the, the vibe of the movie in general like you're you're always kept somewhat back from what is happening but you are always kind of in tune with the emotions of the characters or specifically uh, phoenix's character Mm. it's pretty horrifying that bit because it's sound is soundless as well pretty much yeah um you're not getting any kind of diegetic sound um and then when you do drop into the scene it's not from a perspective that you would realize and it's quite disorientating um Mm -hmm. but yeah that's a, a you know a kind of standout scene um from that and yeah i thought it was pretty amazing and yeah like i said one that will stay with me for a while next we have our number seven movie greta gerwig's ladybird which was a movie that came out last year in the u.s you know kind of towards the tail end of the year and became something of a uh, a juggernaut during award season it didn't end up being rewarded that often because uh, a lot of its categories ended up going to other other movies, uh, some in some cases deservingly, in some cases not. But it was certainly a movie that got nominated a lot. It was a movie that I think maybe dropped out of the conversation after the award season was over, uh, unsur- unsurprisingly, because, you know, that, that's kind of like the horse race and that's what got everyone excited. But I think it's a movie that retains a lot of its, you know, great power and charms, you know, as a this wonderful little slice of life depiction of living in... Uh, Sacramento in the early 2000s and of really conveying 
the emotional inner life of its of its titular character. Mm, yeah, it's it's weird, isn't it, that like this time last year we sat down to talk about a film that you'd just seen mm. that was very much at the beginning of its award cycle life, and now when you you sit down and think about the films that came out this year, there's a bunch of them like this and The Shape of Water, which won fucking Best Picture. Didn't even mm. think about it for this list. It's a good movie, um, but like it kind of died out. But The Lady Bird uh, did not, and I'm a sucker for those kind of like intimate kind of stories from small town um america it was sacramento mm. it's not a small town it's a fucking state capital of california um <laughs> but uh, that's right isn't it yeah yeah i don't know i made bold claims about state capitals willy-nilly um but yeah it kind of feels very small town feels very intimate but like rides on unbelievable amount of charm and when i first saw it trailered i kind of slightly was worried that it would be kind of too indie in mm-hmm. like the worst possible way but it manages to be a kind of like a character study and not be twee or be kind of disposable and just the central performance by Saoirse Ronan and Laurie Metcalf those two standouts that they were they're really kind of like charismatic and likable and utterly charming that like you would happily be on the side of someone who jumps out of a moving car in the first <laughs> scene. And yeah, it is, it's something that took its time to drop over here. It didn't come out until March, I don't think, um, wow. which is, was kind of frustrating waiting for it. Definitely kind of makes you wish we'd have more opportunities from people like Greta Gerwig and they shouldn't be, you know, waiting all this time to get one and, you know, put something like that on film. Like why can't mm. they have been doing that all this time? And makes me very excited for, is it Little Women she's doing next? Yes, uh, which she's been releasing very uh, charming Polaroids of the cast kind of hanging out uh, on Twitter this week, which uh, I'm very uh, excited about because she's assembled a really great group of people. And mm. yeah, she's, I think, based on this, she's a very talented visual storyteller. Like, I think people underrate how well the movie is edited and how nicely it's composed because mm-hmm. it's just a story about a girl or whatever, you know, like those kind of movies tend to be underrated. Yeah. But I, I think she is uh, immensely talented as a filmmaker, and I'm really excited to see what she does next. In terms of the relationship between the mother and daughter, it I found that to be really very honest and truthful. Um, mm-hmm. It very much reminded me of my mum and my sister, their relationship to each other when my sister was like um, 15, 16 years old, like deep wells of love, but also constantly screaming at each other. (laughs) Um, And I think she did an amazing job of really capturing that uh, particular aspect of the mother-daughter relationship. And and also the kind of weird atmosphere of like 2003, 2004 um, America. Because that was like when I first started coming over to America for holidays and things like that. And I think it really captured a lot about the the, just the weird atmosphere in the country, like post massive traumatic event happening and everyone trying to figure out where they all stand in all of it and what it means for their lives, which you can kind of see in, uh, in Lady Bird, kind of like her talking about the political situation every so often or trying to, you know, kind of like talk about 
changing the world and things like that. It, it really felt like it captures it captured the chaos of that time really nicely. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Our next movie, number six, is Ryan Coogler's Black Panther. Mm. We did a whole episode on this, so if people want to kind of hear our, our, our more in-depth thoughts, they can go back and listen to that one, because I think we talked about that one for a good solid, like, 30 or 40 minutes. But I, I think it says a lot that this particular movie kind of really resonated throughout the year in a way, and we kind of alluded to this, in a way that a lot of the other kind of Marvel blockbusters didn't, you know. I think that it just it just stands out. It's just much more distinctive visually. Like I watched the first half hour of it again recently since it's on Netflix and I was really struck by just how brilliant like the opening scene is of it's, uh, you know, kind of digitally representing the, the history of Wakanda and kind of crafting this mythology kind of really seamlessly and beautifully in a way that is memorable and distinctive. And just how well Coogler moves the story along, because it does do an awful lot of stuff in like half an hour. It introduces you to this entire new world that we've only ever glimpsed before. It introduces you to an entire culture that has never really been explored in the Marvel Universe and has to introduce you to like a dozen new characters who you're going to kind of spend the movie getting to know in kind of more detail. And the kind of the energy and the verve and excitement behind it all, I think, is what really makes it distinctive. It didn't feel necessarily like Coogler was just going on, oh, guess I'm going to make a Marvel movie. That's what people do now. It was like, I am making Black Panther. I am making a movie that is going to resonate with people who don't usually see themselves depicted on screen in this kind of story and certainly in this, this these numbers, you know, like to have a, a, a movie that is made on this scale where there's only, like, two or three white people is mm -hmm. really unique uh, yeah. in, in certainly in modern Hollywood. And it's interesting that in a, in a big Hollywood blockbuster where you're taking a trip into unfamiliar territory, they will give you something you recognize to kind of hold your hand in the Marvel movies. They'll give you a character from one of the other films mm -hmm. to cross over our guide to from the familiar to the unfamiliar was Tim from the office <laughs> who, is, who is treated resoundingly through the film, like an imposter, a, col mm. a colonizer and someone who is not useful unless he's got his mouth closed mm -hmm. and is uh, not trying to uh, interfere, which is kind of bold in many ways and very interesting yeah. that they would take that approach, but you know, it worked. And the fun thing about black Panther, which we talked about in our episode on it, was that it just constantly, week by week, undid all of those ghastly historical truths that Hollywood's been hanging on to, that, like, you know, you can't open a movie with, like, a black cast, people won't watch it, it won't go down well with white audiences, it won't go down with female audiences, and then all of, one by one, these just kind of got shredded away, and it turned out to be, you know, it's, what, in the top ten biggest grossing films of all time? Mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, which is crackers like it would have been it was an achievement for that film to do well not to go absolute damn busters and the thing is is that like when i went to see infinity war at the cinema the bit where wakanda turned up people cheered mm, yeah. <laughs> and i was like oh wow this is something different like people actually cheered when wakanda appeared nothing happened just the words wakanda appeared on the screen and people 
cheered. And this is a British audience, a very reserved <laughs> audiences. People don't holler and shout at the screen. But that happened. And I was like, oh, maybe they were onto something the whole time. And yeah, I, I mean, I've I've seen it again since. And it's very distinct visually, like you say. But it's got something to say. Like, mm. and props to Marvel slash Disney. They allowed Ryan Coogler to make a film in which you stop midway through the film and think, I think the villain's got a point. <laughs> Mm. and i don't know what side i'm on now clearly he's going about it in the wrong way but isn't what he's saying kind of true mm. and yeah i th- i thought it was you know in the the top the kind of echelon of those marvel movies but also of just the superhero movie in general or even like hollywood blockbusters if you want to take it up a notch i think um it was an exemplary piece of filmmaking across the board mm. and like a hugely enjoyable film to boot yeah, I think there's something to be said for allowing messiness to creep into something as something as fine-tuned as the Marvel machine. And that's, I think, what you see in like the themes and the arguments in Black Panther is like you did see so many people like afterwards would like change their Twitter avatar or, or uh, handle to like Killmonger was right or whatever. Like, and there were real long, detailed discussions from people like arguing about whether or not the viewpoint he was printing in the movie was uh, was correct or if it was kind of like needlessly nihilistic, if he's going about it in the wrong way, as you said. And I think that's just fascinating. And I think that's something that you really don't see from a lot of those Marvel movies. They don't have that element of complexity to them or of deliberately saying hey, I'm just going to kind of throw this out here and then you have to deal with it. Like, mm. that that sense that it doesn't really resolve with, you know, the, the, the final fight and the hero winning. Mm-hmm. Like, it does basically say, yeah, I mean, like, he still kind of had some good points there. <laughs> maybe, maybe we shouldn't be cutting ourselves off from the world. Mm. Yeah. Next up is our number five movie, Sandy Tan's Shirkers. Shirkers is a documentary about a movie called Shirkers, which Sandy Tan and and her friends directed in the early 90s in Singapore. Their intent was to make the first ever indie road movie in Singapore. So over the course of several years, they made this movie with the help of an American teacher who uh, told them a lot of stories about his involvement in the American film industry and who they bonded with over their love of American movies and and, uh, international cinema in general and after they had made this movie that guy disappeared with the movie themselves and so the movie is uh, the the documentary Shirkers is in part Sandy Tan again like uh, No Greater Law you know there's this idea that it's an investigation you know Sandy Tan trying to figure out what happened to this guy who essentially ran away with several years of her life because she and her friends had put so much of themselves into this movie but is also a really fascinating look at tan herself and her relationships to her friends and what working on this movie kind of revealed about their friendships and how that has reverberated through the years yeah it is a remarkable film i watched it off the back of our own uh, Matt Risby uh, recommending it and mm. he refused to give anything away <laughs> saying yeah. it's it's better you go in knowing less about it so anyone who does want to watch it 
<laughs> I think just skip ahead now mm, because yeah. we are probably going to talk quite a bit about what actually happens because the twists and turns in it are there's all these you know inconvenient truths and cliches right stranger than fiction but really Mm. I think this is a depressingly common story Mm. where you have a mentor and a mentee and that work becomes subsumed or stolen quite literally (laughs) Mm. and I think it's interesting the idea of how it plays with like news and the idea of the artist as a nightmare because I think Mm. what I really enjoyed as the film went on is Sandy Tan looking back through footage and seeing how she treats her friends who are also her colleagues and how she I think it's just after her wedding (laughs) and she's and she's kind of bossing as to how how she should be shot at her wedding which you could say a lot of brides would do but it is definitely a filmmaker who is getting married who is (laughs) who is calling the shot rather than your maybe typical wedding photos it's also i believe the person she's talking to is is her friend who then went on to direct like one of the most visually dynamic and influential independent uh singapore movies ever yeah. so it's like not only is she bossing her friend at her own wedding but how to shoot it it's like oh you know <laughs> i'm bossing the person who actually went on to become a professional filmmaker yeah which is uh yeah, it's very funny. <laughs> yeah, it, it is really funny. And I think I, I love it as a, as a depiction of female friendship between, between women who are ambitious. Mm, yeah. I think I saw a lot of, there is a lot of Sandy Tan facing up to herself. There's a lot of them kind of having not spoken for years that they stumble upon feelings that haven't been dealt with. And so the conversations that they have put them right back in that place. And you can see mm. them in the same way that like, if you go home to your family... <laughs> <laughs> you can yes. find yourself immediately regressing. <laughs> I think you see a lot of that uh, with them as well. And it's one of the f- most, like, in terms of how much it manages to set up and cover in, like, a 90-minute running time, it is an incredibly lean and dense film that's still mm. really accessible and and really personal in a bizarre way and because the mystery doesn't get solved i mean that's the major spoiler guys sorry but it you know sandy tan wants to find an answer she there are tantalizing kind of points on the way where she seems to be getting closer to having some kind of understanding of this man who she had this really formative but deeply disturbing relationship with in terms of Mm. and and she was not the only one like there was more of a kind of romantic edge to it that seems to be entirely from from his side but then when she goes on to meet other people and like you know actual again people who are very successful (laughs) in film even in a more in a more below the line way that this is a repeated pattern and to to try and understand someone who whose motivations are still hidden for all intents and purposes for someone who manages Mm. to just kind of disappear from the people who thought were closest to him and to have absolutely no 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 grasp and no answers and to someone who's had a huge a huge effect on your life it's really it's really staggering but i absolutely commend sandy tan for for making this film and for doing it and dealing with it in as much as she could think it's Mm. she manages to kind of find some resolve throughout it all but oh i'm I'm thinking about it every day i watched it what (laughs) a month and a bit ago and there's just little fragments of it 
and the particular cruelty of when the film is discovered mm. but crucially <laughs> without audio which yeah is just i mean my my i was just heartbroken yeah that is it's such a, a smart bit of storytelling on their part because you are seeing so much of the movie throughout and what you see of the movie sure because it does look like really quite amazing considering it was made by teenagers just kind of like on their spare time but even in that you know in terms of early 90s independent cinema it does look really startling Mm. and inventive and like they are trying to push their limits as much as possible as creators but also really there's that kind of outsider art edge to it of that feeling of these people understand most of the rules, but maybe not all of them. So they don't necessarily know that what they're doing is kind of avant-garde and brilliant. And that can make for something that's really exciting. And, but, but as whenever you see these clips, you know, there are, there are sound effects on them and it does seem as if, Oh, somewhere along the way they found the completed movie. And and then when you realize, Oh, they did find it, but it's, missing like the thing that is 90% of what a movie is <laughs> certainly the the movie that they made it is really crushing and it's such a well orchestrated yeah, I mean twist sounds cheap but it is such a really yeah. smart bit of of storytelling on their part to have just gone okay we've led you down the garden path a little bit on this by say by showing you these clips and making it seem like oh the, the full movie is there but then making you realize oh we can never see the full movie and and maybe the full movie doesn't quite add up to the brilliance of those clips but it does still leave you kind of thinking oh what you know what could have been and that's something as well that people in terms of i think they talk about it towards the end of the movie like one of their film critic friends talks about you know it really does feel like shirkers was this missing piece of uh, singapore cinema because a lot of the because of the people involved with who would then go on to make actual movies and movies of their own and and kind yeah. of move and, and people who saw it who were kind of inspired by it like it almost feels like you know like in um astronomy when you can't see a star but you know that there is a star there because of its effect on everything around it yeah but then you see it and it's like oh, you know that, that we still don't know what that movie is or what it could have done if it had been allowed to go out into the world yeah completely which is really heart heart-wrenching totally and i think there's just there's something so cruel and mm. immensely, like in terms of a microcosm of what Georges was all about, is to not even remove entirely. It's not. It's not like the entire film is completely lost. You know, the audio mm. and and the visual. It's like no, here you go, but it's but it's lacking inherently, and and to me that's just it's almost. I don't, I'm, this is the problem I start talking about circus <laughs> and it just renders me fucking speechless because I still can't quite believe it. But to not give someone something whole, you know, either mm. way, just, and, and that was George completely from what I understand. It was kind of up, always up until a point and a really, and a really horrible point and the power that he managed to kind of wield. But you're right, it is is lost and i think it's interesting yeah this kind of being led down the garden path but you don't feel that you are at all at all and it's and it's a really it's a choice from a very 
smart filmmaker who understands mm. how we consume films yeah to then have that emotional resonance so yeah it's it's absolutely staggering <laughs> <laughs> Uh, next, we have a tie at number three. So I just flipped a coin earlier to decide which would go first. So three, but also four, we have Orson Welles's The Other Side of the Wind. Like Black Panther, this was one that we did a whole episode on because it was just such a incredible and unexpected event in kind of cinephilia that Orson Welles's The Other Side of the Wind finally got completed after decades and decades of existing in this incomplete state. So if people want to kind of hear our kind of in-depth thoughts on it, they can go back and listen to that that episode on it. But I think, you know, it's it's worth restating here, A, that it's a movie that's technically a 2018 movie, so we can fucking count it. Yeah. <laughs> it came out this year. It didn't exist in this form prior to uh, November of 2018. Was it October? When did it come out? Fairly recently, right? Yeah. Yeah, November. Yeah. But I mean, it's it's funny that like Netflix started pushing for a best director nod for Orson Welles in 2018. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think we should get a, a best actor for John Huston. Why not? <laughs> Just really go all in. Yeah, Peter Bogdanovich, dust off his cravat, get himself down the uh, <laughs> down the Oscars. Yeah, I, like we said in the in the thing, it's it's quite something, and it, yeah. it's. In, ter- in terms of what it represents and the kind of gateway to the past that Netflix have opened in their weird cult ceremony in the basement, <laughs> it is 100% what this platform should be being used for. Mm. And um, they really went for it. Uh, like with all the supplementary things they put on, the two documentaries that accompany it, they mm-hmm. went for it. And I'm so pleased that they did. And yeah, it's a remarkable film. And yeah, I you know it's weird. The first ever kind of it feels like having a re-release in your best of you know a reissue <laughs> in your in your top albums of the year. But yeah, it's 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 you know new and old, and somehow yeah, I can't still can't quite stop thinking about it, which is unusual because I very rarely think about anything. <laughs> uh, for me, like the comparison would be like when. Brian Wilson's Smile came out in like 2004 mm. and that I think was on a lot of best of lists for that year and it's like I mean you can make the argument well the songs were written a long time ago and like it took him a long time to assemble it but that doesn't mean that it's not that 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 ignores the fact that it is a finished product that came out in 2018 mm. I think I think that's fine to count it especially because the way it came into the world is so contemporary you know it debuted on a streaming service which are words that if you said them to Orson Welles in 1971 he would have just drunkenly kind of swung at you Mm. Uh, and you'd be glad of it that he would have paid you that kind of attention particularly Mm -hmm. if you're like Peter Bogdanovich yeah at least based on uh, the relationship depicted in the movie and I think that's that's kind of like like you say that's that's the thing that's that almost kind of like, I think we've made this analogy before, you know, that kind of almost brings it up to neutral in like a good place style point system. <laughs> like <laughs> everything else that, or that Netflix does that's like releasing shitty stuff or harming the theatrical revenue of movies or whatever. But they also completed this project that had been struggling for decades to be completed and that had, you know, kind of broken the hearts of so many people involved with it, as you see in those documentaries. All these people who were like, who tried to get it made and had tinkered with it even after Orson Welles passed away. And it really does stand as a tribute to all those people that this really 
breathtaking and strange and inventive movie was finally completed and you know there's you could kind of talk yourself to death talking about whether or not this is the movie that wells would have wanted you know if maybe over the course of his life his plans for it changed or things like that but it still represents a piece of work that he you know kind of spent a great deal of time kind of tinkering with and the end result of literally thousands of people working tirelessly for a very long time to try and get this final maybe not even final because there's still a lot of other stuff he did that just isn't in any way completable but this missing piece of his filmography out there for people to discover and enjoy and to kind of assess and reassess in the broader terms of his career like it is really fascinating to consider what exactly his his oeuvre would have looked like if he had completed the movie at the time and had continued in this vein if he had continued to explore the kind of like radical editing techniques you see in this and f for fake and the the other kind of essay stuff he was doing around the same time mm. and if netflix have got any sense they'll start to build a awesome world cinematic universe <laughs> where the characters from other side of the wind start to interact with like galacticus from transformers <laughs> and don quixote <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah, all of the hits. <laughs> uh, next up is our number three, also number three because it's tied, but number three movie of the year, Paul Schrader's First Reformed, which was a movie that I went to see uh, over the summer when it started to kind of expand, and which uh, I haven't really stopped thinking about since. I'm a big fan of Paul Schrader in general. I find him to be a really fascinating filmmaker, and even though not everything he does is good anyone who's seen the canyons will know <laughs> that's a really a really dreadful movie but he is just this really fascinating filmmaker and writer and it was really exhilarating seeing him combine those two elements in this movie in which he kind of took the transcendental style that he wrote about in the 60s when he would talk about uh, ozu and drea bresson and apply it to one of his own movies because he's never really kind of gone all in on this kind of austerity in in his career and but applying that kind of decades old style to the most contemporary concern you could have which is about you know climate change and the future of the earth and it was really i found it really really powerful how he took this bleak style and applied it to the bleakest of possible subjects. There's there's a story about Paul Schrader, and I, I don't know whether it's apocryphal or not, but it said that during the 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 kind of production of Taxi Driver, mm-hmm. um, he couldn't sleep unless he had a loaded gun in his mouth. Yeah, and that that is <laughs> probably not true. But if you told someone what kind of film would be made by a man who used to sleep with a loaded gun in his mouth. You'd probably come up with something like First Reformed, mm. which is about as bleak as it gets. Yeah. And it's... But at the same time, features an incredibly compelling performance by Ethan Hawke, who I yeah. have to say, as much as I love a lot of films that he's in, um, I've always underrated him as an actor, I think. 
and I don't know what that is. I don't know whether it's because I saw Reality Bites a lot when I was younger, um, <laughs> or that he was, you know, like a teen heartthrob, maybe. Like, I'm not sure what that is, but like, I've never once thought I'm absolutely blown away by this Ethan Hawke performance. He just happens to be in good movies, but holy shit, he's incredible in that film as a kind of a priest in a historic, is it kind of up like New York State, where yeah. they are? Yeah, New York yeah. State kind of church. This kind of, and uh, Paul Schrader was kind of, was he raised in a kind of like weird Dutch Calvinist cult or something? Yeah, he didn't uh, start watching movies until he was like 18 or something. Right, okay, and yeah. I, I think he, much like Scorsese, who obviously worked with a long time, he, that he also at one point considered going into the priesthood. Yes. So the character that Ethan Hawke portrays has has to take us on this very uncomfortable journey as he's he starts to unravel both physically and mentally. And, I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but the performance is so good and the the way it's framed is so kind of expertly done that when the character is about to do possibly the most outrageous thing you can think of... Mm. You are kind of thinking, oh, I can see how he, I can see how he's come to this decision. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, which is mad. And I, I started watching the film, and I was like, oh, this is, I'm not going to enjoy this. I'm, I'm feeling, I've had a good day. Like, <laughs> <laughs> why ruin it now with this? Like, you know. But Jesus Christ, it reminded me like tonally a lot of um, Affliction, another yeah, like Paul Schrader movie, which kind of does a lot of the same stuff. But yeah, powerful, powerful stuff. And um, Amanda Seyfried is really great in it as well. Yes. And yeah, that kind of relationship is is pretty incredible. But also, when it went off onto the kind of a, the climate change thing, I thought, oh, this is just a quirk of a character. But then mm. it kind of carried on. And then I was like, maybe this is a Neil Breen movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> but no, it wasn't. Like it was. It it felt very prescient and the idea that if you were to have some kind of existential breakdown as a priest it'd probably be over something like this Mm. Um, i'm not sure again maybe like killmonger i wouldn't go about it in that way yeah (laughs) and i probably would have sought medical help much earlier Mm -hmm. um but yeah i mean that is one that is gonna be kind of hard for me to scrub off no Mm. matter how hard i try because yeah it was it was kind of watching it through my fingers a lot of the time. And I saw it in a double bill with Ant-Man, which is, <laughs> yeah, I wish I'd have watched Ant-Man second. It's all mm. I can say. But yeah, an astonishing film. And kind of, Schrader's not done a film for a while, has he? He, he has actually been making movies fairly regularly, but they're movies that get fairly minimal releases, like you may. And they're also... They're so strange to consider in terms of First Reformed. Like, the movie he made immediately before this was a movie called Dog Eat Dog, which is, like, an incredibly lurid and pulpy crime movie with Nicolas Cage. Mm. It's it's actually a lot of fun and really just, like, so over the top and, and odd. And also he casts himself in a minor role, which he's never done before. Uh, and it's really weird to see when he shows up, but... It, 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 it's really strange how 
the last sort of 10 years or so of his career, he's been doing these odd genre experiments. And then he suddenly this year took this hard <laughs> left turn into something that is so clearly in the model of some of his, early, of his heroes. And also, you know, in something like it, it recalls a lot of like Bergman stuff, like something like winter light, which is another kind of sad priest movie. Um, sad's probably an understatement, but you know, sad, kind of... sad priest movie. <laughs> what a subgenre. I love it. Uh, but, but of a, a man facing a crisis of faith in the, uh, in the kind of like confronting the, the, the bleakness of existence and their own questions about their place in the universe. But this obviously has more, contemporary resonance as opposed to winter light which is more just kind of a meditation on post-war concerns i guess and that that sense of like you've grown up having seen unrelenting horror being carried out by people like how can you consider that god exists and this has a similar theme to it you know that's the 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 thing he says on um the thing he writes up on the board for the church is like, can God ever forgive us? Mm. Um, and, you know, uh, and I think he even says, you know, can God ever forgive us for what he's done, we've done to his creation and things like that. And it really is striking to think of how few movies tackle the question of climate change and the impact it just has on people as directly as this movie has i think largely because it's a fucking downer <laughs> it's mm-hmm. really it's really hard to engage people on it in a way that is hopeful even though there are kind of things people can do to be proactive about it and and there are things that governments are trying to do even if it may not be enough but like it's it, it really is striking to see someone using their platform as you know a kind of a major respected hollywood uh, maybe not even hollywood film, but you know kind of a respected art house cinema to just basically say i am going to engage with the top most pressing existential crisis of our time in the most unsparing terms mm. and delivering something that leaves you shaken by it in a way that is uh yeah depressing but also i don't know there is something really refreshing about i guess being confronted with something in clear clear terms and Mm. kind of like shorn of all bullshit Mm. it's uh an unflinching um portrayal of of kind of dread and Mm. of being of being at the literal end of a rope Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's punishing. I really found that I feel like we're not we're not selling this to our audience. If you want to feel great, if you want to <laughs> if you want to watch the feel good hit of the summer, <laughs> then I recommend First Reformed. Um, a didn't David Ehrlich have it as his David uh, number one? I think he yes, did. he did. Yes, yeah, but yeah, it's it's thoroughly deserving of the praise it I really hope that it does that thing that happens to actors and actresses when they kind of get to maybe like they're kind of like mid to late forties when people kind of suddenly realize how good they are, even though they've been good mm. all along. Like I've just said about, you know, Ethan Hawke, I'd kind of never really thought of him as, you know, a great actor or anything, but this performance is something else. If you're going to do it, yeah, do it like that, I guess. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Our next film is one that we've talked about quite a bit on this show already, but uh, I feel like we can still talk about it even more because it's such a, a rich a rich dish that won't leave you sick. It's Paul Thomas Anderson's Phantom Thread. 
so for kind of a little bit of transparency into our you know our, our respective ballots uh, this movie is so high up on the list because you and I both had it as our number one of the year yeah. um, <laughs> because it's just it's a movie that I saw for the first time back in January technically it's a 2017 movie in in America but you know because we use UK release dates it, it, it qualifies for ours and I didn't get to watch it last year so we, there was no way we could have talked about it on the show so uh, so I'm perfect so it, it perfectly uh, legal it's all legal that it qualifies but um, yeah like I saw it back in January and it's a movie that hasn't really left my mind in that time it certainly hasn't left my ears because I listen to the score all the time whenever I'm doing anything but it's just I, I think I think it may have become my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie yeah and I think it's really it's really weird how that has worked out because like when I first started watching his movies Boogie Nights was my favorite of his and that came out in 97 then There Will Be Blood was my favorite and that came out in 2007 <laughs> Phantom Fred came out and the, the, that's now my favorite and that came out in 2017 mm. so he has a 10 year cycle of just really knocking it out of the park that's not to diminish the work he does in the in-between years like generally most everything he does I like but it really is I just find that really funny that every 10 years he just does something that really just connects with me on a real deep fundamental level it's magnum opus i wonder what's going to happen in uh, 2028 in that case yeah <laughs> i think it's yeah it's that deep fundamental level isn't it i remember watching it in the cinema for the first time and my running commentary in my head was what the fuck like <laughs> like i was not i was not in any way thinking oh my god this is genius this is a masterpiece i was like paul thomas uh, can we have a chat? What? What? <laughs> what? And then it is that final scene where he uh, consensually eats his his mushroom omelet, and and they are finally they're finally explicit about the rules of the game that they are playing and their motivations, mm. and everything with that beautiful, rich, rushing swell of that gorgeous soundtrack. And I was like, mm. okay. I'm done. This is everything. <laughs> I get it now. And then have watched it only a couple of times since then. But you're right in terms of soundtrack. I'm I'm listening to it all the time. Um, I even bought myself the vinyl and I swish about the house pretending that I'm Reynolds, uh, drinking that Sun <laughs> Sushong and um, shouting at my cat for interrupting me. I think it's just there's nothing else quite like it. I mean, mm. I love a film that has a very special place in my heart is the Duke of Burgundy. Mm, yeah. Which is a Peter Strickland film, which I think was really not given its due attention on release and is again about a very, a sort of, well, a more explicitly dominant submissive relationship um, mm. that is quite isolated and the kind of struggles and dynamics within that. But I, I don't think I've seen anything else that is... I mean, I think it's one of the best dark comedies I've ever seen. And I mm. think, again, you know, my absolute hero, as I've mentioned before, Julia Davis, her presence in her cameo, I think is a real indicator of how how wry we're meant to take this. Like, I think we're meant to mm. eat this mushroom omelette that makes us sick and love it and and take that with, like, a shovel full of salt, you know? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I... I I think it's of like really twisted and how it manages to 
have such a span of different things. I remember when it was first announced and the press was Paul Thomas Anderson and Daniel Day-Lewis reunite to make a film about London fashion and high society yeah. in the 50s. And I was like, okay, <laughs> that's not what it's about at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's where it's set, maybe. I think Leslie Manville is staggering. Mm. Vicky Creeps has one of the best and most subtle performances ever. I think the way that it kind of pushes forward an idea of toxic femininity is pretty revolutionary. Uh, every every single uh, frame of it is beautiful, mm. as further um, proved by the you know my favourite Twitter account, Phantom Thread with no context, yeah, and some sausages, <laughs> which is the best <laughs> handle ever. How every single shot feels significant um, yes. in a, yeah. in a way that as much as you know the master was incredibly beautiful and that used to be my favorite paul thomas anderson film i think this is just swept in i think because it does have that humor it does have that gothic aspect to it i just like you say it's just an incredibly rich dish mm. <laughs> in so many ways. i think for me the humor of it is so is so key i mean paul thomas anderson's always been fairly funny in his movies he's always had kind of a very dark sense of humor like i think it's it's hard not to watch the end of the oil when he says when he shouts, I'm finished and not kind of laugh a little bit at just the audacity of that's how you end your movie. <laughs> just yeah. I'm finished cut to written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. And, you know, uh, uh, and I think that's something that has really permeated everything that he's done, even the stuff that's not overtly creative. There are, there are even laugh lines in the master, which could be kind of like a really austere movie, but uh, uh, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman screaming pig fuck at someone. It's inherently very funny. <laughs> it is. And there are, there are stories of PTA having to leave the set because he was laughing so much. Mm. And I and I think this is his, his this is his rom-com. And there was some mm. absolute hero on Twitter who re-edited bits of it to appear like a, a VHS trailer for like an 80s rom-com. And it worked oh, yeah. really well, like in the vein of like <laughs> say anything. And I think it manages to kind of bring out those kind of roots and the bizarre dynamics you have in a relationship. Just, I mean, just how hilarious their arguments are. Mm, yeah, I think we've talked about, you know, the the deal, the, the dinner that she makes for him and the the asparagus being cooked in oil instead of butter and no, sorry, in butter instead of oil. And, you know, the, the way that escalates him saying like, do you have a gun? Where's your gun? Are you here? Are you an agent sent here to, to ruin my evening and possibly my entire life? It's like, it's such a ridiculous thing to say, but it's the sort of thing that people will say in arguments when in a relationship where you've just decided that you want to have the argument, which is what Reynolds has clearly decided that he has, he will do in that situation. And there is something incredibly it's a very i think it's a very human movie in a lot of ways in its moments of absurdity in its eroticism as well because i think yeah we yes. talked about this before it's a very sexy movie custard um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> in in a way that i think the like because there was the first tagline of it whatever where people say oh it's pt anderson making a movie in the london fashion world of the 50s or whatever and then the second one that kind of came out just as it was wrapping production or as it was about to start making its debut was, oh, Paul Thomas Anderson has made the art house Fifty Shades of Grey or whatever, which is 
are probably closer to the truth of what it is in terms of like the specific dynamics it looks at but it's more it's less kind of like titillating or it's not like trying to be outre so much as it is just offering you a very in some ways a very frank look at the sexuality of these two characters and there is something so just so inviting about that yeah a movie that it really just offers you a look at these characters and says like this this is definitely what they're into and they're not it's not necessarily trying to kind of like titillate or arouse you in that regard but that in some ways makes it all the all the sexier totally and and it's funny because it is a very sexy film but you only you never see them have sex and no the the point where we're actually led to believe that you know this has been consummated comes quite Mm -hmm. late in the film and again what we see is something that's actually goes kind of beyond sex but is Mm. something that is like again the movie title a phantom thread that holds them Mm. together (laughs) to each other Mm -hmm. that's to do with possession and power and understanding desire and Mm. what and what you need as well um and the way that they are able to in this horribly codependent way provide that for each other and i think there's something that reminds me a little bit of lolita about that Mm -hmm. the the original one with a film adaptation with kubrick and i think what kubrick did so brilliantly in lolita uh that i think did not funnily enough come across in the uh germ irons (laughs) version where we see yeah horrible explicit (laughs) uh, sex scenes is that you know Humbert's yearning for Lolita is uh, entirely inappropriate I want to make that devastatingly clear but he Mm. he is looking for life he's looking for something like beyond himself and even though that Mm. kind of manifests itself in a kind of like sexual way it is also just like this kind of deep primal desire and I think that's what they have for each other and they can try and intellectualize it, and uh, but they do just seem to be. And I think one of the sexiest moments in it for me, bar custard, is where it's it's the fashion show, and mm. there is this parade of of different models. But really, it is a game between the two of them, and mm-hmm. but it's a game that needs to happen with many players, um, because right. they because they need that audience because Alma understands that Reynolds is only really invested at looking at at her because there is this Mm -hmm. muse thing, but then he's nothing in a way without her. And she would, you know, wants to remind him of that at any given opportunity. (laughs) Yeah, no. And yet, and yet for this kind of like entirely uh, in, in many literal ways, unhealthy (laughs) relationship, Mm. it's so codependent and ridiculous, but there's something just, I don't I don't know there's there's still I think I think because there is so much again probably reality to it because the the, mm. the premise of the film uh, the the idea came to PTA when he was very ill and he he's quoted as saying that his his wife Maya Rudolph let not let's not forget a producer on Shirkers so power couple mm-hmm. much in terms of our best of the year list so yeah Maya Rudolph totally absolutely very very talented uh, artist herself looked at him when he was in his sickbed with what he described as one of the most tender looks she'd given me in a long time. And, mm. I, and I think there is maybe a little bit of uh, insight into a relationship between two people who are incredibly artistic 
but in a way that is still rooted in reality. Like I think one of the things I find so remarkable about Phantom Thread is there's this very strong, subtle refugee subplot. Mm, yeah. Which I think is a really fascinating addition and, and again just gives this film more depth. And I think it's staggering that it manages to just include so so let's just count right so it's a refugee subplot set in a high fashion world of the 50s and it's about uh, a guy sort of discovering that he's an emetophobe oh yeah and and he's still not over the death of his mother and this woman is also becomes like a muse and rises her way up to the top of oh and leslie manville i don't feel like i've spoken about her enough it's just yeah number one number one by a long shot yeah, I think the the I think the, the the fact it's set in the fifties is probably why, in some way, why it works well because I think it needs that restraint to it, that yeah. sense of repression because it's such an unruly and urgent movie in yes. the sense that it's driven by its urges. That <laughs> having that veneer of classiness is what that that's the combination for me that makes it such a potent movie and why it's so great to rewatch is it really does feel as if underneath this incredibly gorgeously composed and kind of elegant you know the camera kind of like slowly kind of like swooping through the house of woodcock and you know the people walking up the stairs in this incredibly beautifully choreographed way like underneath it all there are these kind of like roiling passions you know in your uh your kind of like romance literature terminology that are really driving the story and which are only very briefly when people are at their their weakest or at their most vulnerable uh, are allowed to peek through and yeah. i think that's that's one of the reasons why it's such a remarkable movie and i think why it's even though you know it's not if for a bunch of oscars and uh, it got great reviews when it came out i still think it's kind of underrated and, and people maybe don't and um, i don't want to say people don't understand it but maybe people don't approach it in the right way they go in thinking it's always oh, going to be this stuffy period drama and there's like yeah. uh i guess everyone's very wearing very nice clothes but the the key to it is what they want to do each <laughs> what they want to do with each other's bodies underneath those clothes i guess yeah that's kind of the thing under it yeah and to, and to take kind of the relationships stuff too literally or to think this is aspirational it's really mm. not like no <laughs> it's, it's very it's very funny if you, yes. it, and that was it once i realized like oh wait i think this is a dark comedy that is like a kind of sartorial sapersexual porno like that's mm-hmm. that's what this is and i love that i had never even thought to string those words together until this film came into being and was made <laughs> and i and i think there's this like oh it's the violent inherent in the system like the way that it manages to depict like british class is mm. is staggering like kind of Leslie Leslie Manville as, as Cyril the old so and so how even the politest thing she says is absolutely dripping with venom. Mm. Yeah, no, I I just think it's. I hope it it gets the the, the following and the appreciation it deserves in in time. I think also having mm. it set in a period time does add to that kind of gothic fairy tale. It's not trying yeah. to say anything about. The fashion industry now it's not trying to talk about relationships now it is essentially this very and i know i'm just going to be repeating myself but it's a, it's a dark gothic thing it's it's about the like you say these urges kind of triumphing over reason mm. but managing to find some kind of bastard harmony <laughs> mm, yeah 
Absolutely. And finally, the shot reverse shot number one movie of 2018, Alex Garland's Annihilation. Which uh, was a movie, one of the few movies that appeared on all three of our ballots, which is why it's uh, obviously come out on top, uh, unsurprisingly. And this was another one, like Phantom Thread, that I saw very early on in the year when it came out in the US, I think in February, sometime around about then. Yes. And I went in not really knowing too much about it. I'd seen the trailers and I'd liked Ex Machina, so I was very excited to see what Alex Garland was going to do next. And obviously there was a lot of hand-wringing about the fact that it was getting a theatrical release in the US, but kind of a token one and everywhere else it was going to be on Netflix and a lot of people kind of like worrying about what it says about the future of the industry and things like that. But, you know, kind of, it was very easy to set all those things aside once the movie started because you're watching it and thinking, oh, this is a very all-encompassing and fascinating vision. I'm just still so jealous that you got to see it in the cinema. Mm. I, because for, for me here in, in, in these aisles, I watched it on Netflix. And again, I, it's crazy to think, you know, I don't think I'd have said maybe even last year that the best film that I'm going to watch next year will be a Netflix original. But here we are. <laughs> mm. And I think for me, I went into it because I'd, I'd read the book. I haven't read the entire, I think it's a trilogy. But I read the book and I absolutely loved the book and so felt very protective in that usual shitty way that I often do <laughs> when I've read a book that I loved and heard it's going to be adapted <laughs> and for some reason feel like it's up to me, like it's going to be a personal affront to me. But then I got over myself and watched the film and absolutely loved it. It's a very different um, beast to the book, but it manages to convey a lot of the themes and enhance them with the with being such a visual medium obviously because the book the descriptions are incredible um and very evocative mm. and for me it's a very similar relationship to under the skin the yes. book itself and the film and again my because i do think they are very similar in that they start off as these very kind of visceral body horrors that then kind of meld into something more existential and mm. i think annihilation is so incredible yeah. for doing that and and in and in a way that feels really i mean i know this sounds ridiculous for a film with the shimmer and that weird bear but feels really plausible and i think that's what i really love from mm. sci-fi is anything that kind of there's that very human thread throughout it and i think anyone who's had an experience of like I think mental illness or disassociation or grappling with any kind of disease, but it is also mm. quite, there's a little bit of a sort of maybe not quite Lovecraftian, but again, this like going back to the Gothic, it is, it is kind of putting human beings in, in their mm. place and saying, maybe you're the weak link here and actually nature's just gonna do its thing. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a, a really unsettling but also very poignant film mm. yeah i i often think when i think of the movie like what are the key moments that really stand out for me and, and it varies between the bear attack which is horrific not not merely the design of the bear itself which is an amazing work of practical design as well but you know the 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 scream <laughs> the scream of a dead person being 
converted into the scream of a bear in order to trick people into uh, being killed by it, which is uh, kind of horrifying in like 17 different ways. But the other thing I think of are things like Tessa Thompson's final scene where she uh, kind of accepts that, you know, the shimmer in a certain way and, you know, kind of like just kind of walks off screen and then the last we see of her is kind of like plant kind of breaking out of her. But then you don't actually see, you know, when, when Natalie Portman chases after, you don't actually see where she's gone and just like this real graceful, beautiful moment of someone accepting themselves and someone who up until that point we have seen that you know she is someone uh, you know everyone on the entire team has this baggage and this trauma that they are carrying around with them for for different reasons Um, but seeing someone who has faced all of this being able to just let it go is incredibly moving and Tessa Thompson plays the moment absolutely gorgeously as well like she really does convey those feelings and then you also have moments like Lena is a of the Portman's character I believe um facing off against the clone of herself but yeah. before the creature turns into her it's just this alien figure who mimics her every move and mm. you just have this also you have this incredible score playing in the background this unearthly music that was featured heavily in the trailer and was basically the thing that made me want to see the movie because I heard that sound effect playing and I thought I need to see the movie that contains this because this does not sound like anything else I've heard recently I think you're you're totally right and I think I think no not quite like any sound you've ever heard or nothing you've ever quite seen and I think it's you know the production design of the film and the art of it Mm. is absolutely staggering because it manages to create these very like uncanny creatures like every part seems to be familiar because they are all organic Mm. bits of matter but rearranging itself and, and creating all these different these different things and that sense of being kind of left behind what it manages to touch on in terms of trauma and fighting and surrender is, um, and in a very kind of like a bleak way, it's, it's not, it doesn't give easy answers. Mm. It doesn't give big emotional setups. Like it's a really, it's a really nuanced arc. And again, yes. it's, it's one of the films that even though um, it came out at the beginning of the year, I can still remember. <laughs> <laughs> which which uh, says something mm. for it given my uh, my patchy memory at best particularly when it comes to end of year roundups but yeah shadow dancing with something that seems to know you better than you know yourself i think that's and let's just hear it for the fact that it is there are lots of women in this film <laughs> and an action film no less mm. um yes always something to to cheer it's a film that in the first 15, 20 minutes, um, I really wasn't sure. But then the further we get into the shimmer, the more time we spend with this group of women um, and how they react to different situations and trying to gauge their motivations. I think you're just so immersed in it. I certainly forgot I was watching it on a screen. I'd love to have seen it in the cinema, mm. but I really didn't feel it really just sucked me in. Yeah, and I think in addition to it being fantastic that you get to see a movie with all of these uh, women playing these characters in a genre which traditionally uh, is very male-centric, is that they're all 
so the characters are also distinctive when they could be such stock types. You know, you think of someone like Gina Rodriguez's character who could so easily have felt like a very cliched, kind of overly brash, I guess, kind of figure. And and obviously that aspect of her character ends up kind of coming back to doom her and mm. to negatively affect the team. But like up until that happens, you find yourself kind of really identifying with her as a character and understanding her fears and she brings such depth of emotion and real nuance to what could be just this real straightforward stock character where from moment one you think okay she's going to be the one that ends up screwing everyone over and even if you do feel like that i feel like the movie takes you on an interesting journey to get you get you there and when that happens it doesn't feel like oh this happened because she plays this kind of character in this kind of story yeah but because we have been given a glimpse into her emotional journey over the course of the movie and if it, it feels right that she would make those decisions even though they're ultimately detrimental to her and everyone around her yeah so congratulations to alex garland I guess. <laughs> well done, lad. And yeah, thanks. Thanks, Matt, for another great year of the show. And thank, thank you to Emily as well for joining us this year. Yeah, who's, she's off sunning herself like some kind of fancy-free dandy. Yeah, while we're shivering our tits off. Well, you're not. You're in Florida. <laughs> it's pretty cold. It's been cold uh, here. Relatively. Yeah. Um, I'm like, we just probably should have put this out at the start of the show. But, you know, Paddington 2 didn't qualify. Mm, but yeah. I I was arguing with her that that's not important. It should just win <laughs> every year. The Paddington movies should just be... We should just talk about them for an hour every year, just as a, as a kind of a constant. Mm. Um, because, because yeah, it's going to appear on a lot of American lists, isn't it? It's, it's appearing on a lot of kind of critics' lists in America because yeah. it came out in, like, February over there. And, yeah, I'm just going to say, you know, Oscar nomination for you, Grant. If it doesn't happen, I'm going to kick the fuck off. <laughs> absolutely. He absolutely deserves it. He's unbelievably charming in that role. And just such a good bounder. Such a good uh, rapscallion. A cad. Um, a cad. He's got all, all of these kind of 19th century words could be readily applied to him. And he seems to be having so much fun. Uh, yeah, let's let's launch a sub-podcast like Till Death Do Us Blart. But instead of talking about Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 every year we just get together and talk about how nice the paddington movies are mm. we'll do each episode about each individual one of the inmates in the prison mm-hmm. and we'll focus on what they're in for um and all kinds of stuff I, I think that like yeah you know no shit paddington 2 is the greatest film of this or any other year mm. yeah absolutely it's utterly delightful and every time i watch Paddington 2 there's always some new like, like you say the, the criminals are all great I particularly like the one who is apparently an MP <laughs> which is kind of a nice yeah, detail yeah Paddington 2 is 2018's best 2017 movie <laughs> and no one can argue with that exactly thank you all for listening to this episode and also throughout the whole year if you've enjoyed it then please subscribe to us on Stitcher iTunes Player FM all the usual places leave us a review rate us and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter where we are at SRS underscore podcast we'll be back in a couple of weeks after New Year's and Christmas are out of the way for our preview of the year ahead in film it's going to be a lot of Sonic talk I can tell you that now 
because, mm. yeah, I mean, we may just have to release a whole sub-podcast about that poster because it is something. But until then, have a nice Christmas and a Merry New Year, everyone. And we'll see you next time. So it's goodbye from me. Mm, goodbye from me. 